And um, hey, when we come together on Sunday mornings, we come here for a couple of things. Uh, we come here first and foremost to, to worship God. Uh, worship is a service that we render to God, and we want our worship to be God-centered. And, uh, and so we come here to worship God. We come here uh, to, to love one another, uh, connect with one another. By the way, Kathy, thank you so much for creating an opportunity for women in our church to connect by opening your home uh, for uh, that brunch. I just think that you know, creating opportunities for people to connect with people is hugely important and always seeking to be inclusive. I think that we've got to do that. I mean, that's what it means to be the church. And, and uh, so we come together to, to, to worship God. We come together to, to, to love one another. And then we come together to hear from God's word. And really what you don't need is you really don't need to hear my word. Uh, you need to hear the word of God. But you need to do more than hear the word of God. Uh, I, I think sometimes if we're not careful, I don't know if you've ever had this, well, you probably haven't had this experience. Every pastor's had this experience where someone would come up and say, Pastor, I don't feel like I'm being fed, you know. And I always want to say, well, you know, when my son was two years old, he needed to be fed. Uh, at, he's 24, he feeds himself now, okay. Uh, but, but, but when I say that, I don't want to say that with an edge in my voice. What I do want to say is I want to remind you, right now, you're going to do a really, really important work. You are. You're going to do something that's super, super important. Uh, and, and everything hinges on what you do, okay? It really does. It, it, it does hinge in some factor on what I do, but it hinges even more on what you do. And, and see, what you, you have to do and what I have to do is what the Bible says is humbly receive the word implanted that is able to save your soul. I can't do that for you. I could be the most brilliant, I'm not, but I could be the most brilliant preacher to ever preach. I could be the most eloquent speaker, I'm not. Uh, I could be the most eloquent speaker who ever spoke. But, but what really matters is hearing the Word of God. And not just hearing it, but humbly receiving the Word that's able to save your soul. In other words, we don't want to hear the Word and be unchanged by it. We would rather struggle, really struggle with the Word. But ultimately to yield ourselves to God in it. And so what I'm going to do is before we launch into um, a few musings before looking at the Word of God and then looking at the Word of God itself, I want, to, I want us to just take a moment and I want us to pray that God will help us to humbly receive His Word. God, this morning, we want to worship You. We want to continue our worship. And Lord, what we want to do is we want to humbly yield ourselves to You. God, sometimes that's not easy for us. We come with all kinds of distractions. And what we want to do today is we want to try to set aside those things like Pastor Matt was encouraging us to do a moment ago, is casting our cares on you because you care for us. So what we want to do right now is we want to cast those cares on you. We want to submit and surrender to you anywhere in our lives where we need to repent. God, help us to see that. And help us to humbly receive your word implanted and be able to save our souls. And I pray this in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. Uh, a while back, I, I, I've shared this story with you before, but it, it really uh, it, it flows into the text of what we're looking at today. But a while back, I was out mountain biking with my son. Now, my son is a little bit more athletic than I am, uh, not to mention he's 35 years younger than I am. 
Uh, so he is a lot more agile and a lot faster on the mountain bike than I am. But we were up, we were mountain biking up in, in Rockville. And uh, as, as we were, were mountain biking, uh, I uh, had a little, my, 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 his, his, his bike is dual uh, suspension, which means he's got suspension on front and back. I, I, I ride a hardtail, which means it's got suspension on the front, only not on the back. And the reason that that's important is when, when you don't have suspension on the back wheel, sometimes it doesn't hug and cling to the trail like it does if you have dual suspension. And so I was riding my hardtail, and, and not having that dual suspension, I felt the back end begin to slide in a little bit of gravel, which is not a big deal. Uh, you, what you do is you counter-steer, you, you re-get, regain control. And, uh, but when I counter-steered, it took me off the trail, and I buried the front end of the bike, and it launched me over the front end. I hit a tree, okay? Hit a tree, wrapped myself around a tree pretty hard, pretty hard. It hurt, it hurt. Uh, and I laid there for a couple of minutes to make sure that it was only hurting and not harming uh, me. And so I laid there for a few minutes, freaked out Caleb, scared the daylights out of him. Uh, kind of scared me. Uh, but then I realized, okay, I'm hurting, but I'm okay. There's nothing broken. So I got back up. And what you have to do when you're up in Rockville and you're on your bike and you have a, a crash, you've got to get back on your bike because the bike's not going to ride itself down by itself. And, and I can't call my mom and say, hey, Mom, can you p- come pick me up? I'm kind of, I hurt my leg. I got an alley. Can you come pick me up? You know, I suppose I could do that with my wife, but I don't think she would do it either. But, uh, so, so what I have to do is I had to put on my big boy underwear and I got to ride my bike down the hill Back to the house, which I'm doing, but on my way down, on my way down, I'm going down a trail. The trail bends to the right, and right where it bends, there's a tree. Yeah, there's a tree. There's a tree. And, and so I'm going down, and I'm steering. I'm staying on the trail, and guess what happens? I feel the back wheel beginning to slide again. Now, what you do whenever you begin to slide towards a tree is you Fix your focus totally, completely on the tree. Just kidding. Uh, what you do is you glance at the tree, but what you do is you focus on the trail. It is absolutely impossible to stay on the trail without focusing on it. There's a basic rule in, in, in cycling that says that where, whatever you look at, that's where your bike goes. And if you want to miss the tree, you better focus on the trail. But when you can feel that back wheel sliding just a little bit, and you know that tree is there, and you just got, you just wrapped yourself around a tree, and you know you're going to hit the same side of your body again, it takes a lot of discipline to focus on the trail. Are you with me here? In life, in life, there are all kinds of things that we can begin to focus on. You know what I mean? There are. Uh, we can focus on things. We can focus on our accomplishments. By the way, you focus on your accomplishments, what happens? You become proud. We can focus on our accomplishments. We can focus on that next thing that we want to buy or that next thing that we want to do that we think is going to ma- make us happy. And if we focus on that thing that we want to buy that we think will make us happy, what does that do with us? makes us materialistic. We can focus on a disappointment. We can focus on a disappointment. We can focus on a disappointment with a person so that it becomes resentment and we can become bitter. We can focus on 
things that are really, really good. We can focus on family. We can focus on our marriage. We can focus on following Jesus. But whatever you focus on is going to shape and define your character. Are you with me here? Are you with me? Imagine for a moment that you could have an encounter with God. Imagine for a moment that Jesus comes down from heaven in all of his glory, and he wished you away to this high mountain for a retreat with him. And you get to see Jesus in the fullness of his glory. How would seeing Jesus in the fullness of his glory change the way you view the rest of your life? What would that look like for you? And there's a story in the Bible, and it's in Matthew chapter 17, and that's where we're at, working our way through Matthew. In Matthew chapter 17, there's an experience similar to this where Peter, James, and John are kind of like whisked away by Jesus for a prayer encounter. And I want us to look at it together, and then I want us to look at what we can learn from their experience. In Matthew chapter 17, the Bible says this. It says, after six days, the six days before this, Jesus had been with his disciples, and he had asked them, who do people say that I am? And they had said, well, some say you're John the Baptist back from the dead, or you're you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for them, says, well, you're, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. So he has this experience with them in Caesarea Philippi, and now, six days later, uh, they are going up on a high mountain. By the way, Caesarea Philippi is right at the bottom of Mount Hermon, the highest point in that little part of the world. Mount Hermon kind of stands between... Uh, uh, modern-day Israel, and, and Jordan's to one side, and Lebanon's to the north. But it's, it's a pretty high mountain. It's, I, I don't remember how tall it is, but I want to say it's like around 10,000 feet. Uh, but, but what it says, and we don't know for sure, you know, tradition says uh, he was at Mount Tabor, but most Bible scholars and Bible teachers that I've read, most of them tend to think, and I tend to think that it was Mount Hermon, only because it says a high mountain, and Tabor's really not that high. It's like Twin Sisters. And, and Mount Tabor is actually, it's actually a mountain, and, and it's right there by Caesarea Philippi. So, you know, wherever they're at, doesn't matter, but they're at this place, this high mountain, and it's just, they're, they're going away on this prayer retreat. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. You remember John? Wrote the Gospel of John. We're going to talk about John a little bit more here in a minute. After six days, Jesus took John, who wrote the Gospel of John, is not John the Baptist, by the way. Okay? Two different Johns. Anyway. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, John, the, uh, the brother of James, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Then he was transfigured before them. If you have a Bible, I would circle that word transfigured. It's an important word, and we're going to come back, and we're going to look at that word a little bit later in a different text of Scripture. But that word uh, is, is the, the Greek word, which is um, metamorpho which is where we get our word metamorphosis. You know, like a caterpillar, it spins this little cocoon, it's in the cocoon, and it's, you know, metamorphosizes, whatever, uh, is transformed into a butterfly. Well, Jesus is metamorphosized, not into a butterfly, but into glory. It says that that there he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. 
Can you see that? Can you see that? Not, not, not read the words, but see it. Can you see in your mind's eye? Can you see this mental image of look at the person next to you and imagine their face being as bright as the sun? How awesome would that be? Yeah, and what the Bible says is that, that, that he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. They were like luminescent. Uh, Luke says that, that, that it, was like, um, it was like lightning. His clothes were like lightning. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah. Wow, Moses and Elijah. Moses, who wrote, gave us the law, you know, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Elijah, the first of the prophets, representing uh, the prophets. And here are Moses and Elijah with Jesus. And, and you know, I, I think sometimes we can kind of think, wow, that's cool, Moses and Elijah. But what's cool isn't Moses and Elijah. What's cool is Jesus. That's the one we're supposed to focus on. The one we're supposed to focus on here is Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Now, I don't know what Peter thinks he's going to contribute. I mean, you know, you're in the company of Jesus, Moses, Elijah. If I was at a church conference with Moses and Elijah, I don't think I'd just plop down at your table and say, hey, guys, it's good for you for me to be here today. I just, I, I don't think I would do that. Maybe I would. I don't know. So, you know, Peter says, hey, Lord, it's good for, hey, Lord, here we are. You know, he's talking with Elijah. He's talking with Moses. Lord, hey, we're here too. Uh, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, three lean-tos, one for Moses and one for Elijah and one for you. Actually, he says, one for you, then for Moses, then Elijah. Verse 5, while he was speaking, a bright cloud covered them. By the way, anytime you see that bright cloud, especially when you're reading through uh, the Old Testament, the bright cloud always represented the presence of God. A bright cloud uh, covers them. And, and, And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. By the way, this is not the first time these words have been uttered in the book of Matthew. When you read this, and you've been reading through Matthew, you immediately go all the way back to Matthew chapter 3, where John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, and a voice from heaven says, This is what? My beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. But this time... God adds a few words here. He says, he says this. He says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Which is kind of a polite say of, way of saying to Peter, Peter, be quiet. Um, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground. I would. I would. They fell face down on the ground. They were terrified. Verse 7. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one 
except Jesus. And if you've got your Bible with you, underline the words, no one except Jesus. I want you to think about those words. What happens when no one except Jesus fills your vision, your focus? Verse 9, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus says, he says, to be sure, Elijah comes, comes, and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. So Elijah's coming. But Elijah has come. Uh, and, and they did not recognize him, Jesus says. They did not recognize Elijah, but they have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to suffer the same fate that John the Baptist did. And then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. What's the significance? What's the significance of seeing no one but Jesus? And, 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 and thank you for asking that question. We're going to get there. We're going to get there, okay? But we're not going to get there in a hurry. Um, when we read this text, we see Jesus revealed to us as, as the glorious one. We see him revealed to us as the glorious one. He comes in, and, and he's transfigured before them. His face shines like the sun. He, that, that he comes to them as the glorious one, the center point of the Old Testament scriptures, the glorious Son of God, beloved of the Father, who always does what's pleasing to the Father, and who's the one to whom we should always listen to in all things. But what I want us to do is I want to kind of walk through this text with us a little bit today. How are the radiant face and the clothes of Jesus significant? I, I think they are. I, I, it's interesting to me sometimes when you read the Gospels, when you read the Bible, how much detail they leave out. If you read today, if you read a book, if you read a biography, uh, if you read a novel, writers today love to give you all kinds of detail. The writers of the Scripture a lot of times don't give you the same kind of detail that sometimes I wish they did. But the detail they give you is very, very important. And so when... Matthew talks about this radiant face and, and the clothes of Jesus. It is important. And that Jesus is revealed to us in his glory. In verse 2 it says, There he, Jesus, was transfigured. Metamorpho, metamorphosis. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. They were like lightning, Luke says to us. Now, it's, it's interesting there. It's interesting. You know, it, I, in John chapter 1, and, and I want to look at this other text of Scripture real quick. Remember, John was with Jesus at this mount, what they call the Mount of Transfiguration. John the Apostle was with Jesus. He was one of the three. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, uh, John makes, he says these words. He says, the Word became flesh, the Word meaning Jesus, 
became flesh, took on our humanity, and he dwelt, literally pitched his tent among us, and we saw his glory. It was real interesting. I was looking at this, and I was thinking about this. We saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I went back and I looked at this. I was so fascinated. I wanted to look, and I wanted to see, you know, how, what, I wanted to kind of look at the word saw. And I wanted to look at, you know, what, what is John saying in this word? And there are several different words that John could have used, but the word he uses here when he says, we saw his glory, is he uses a word that isn't used a lot in the New Testament. And I had to look it up. And the word is thalmai, and, and, and it says this, uh, thalmai means to gaze upon something. It means to gaze admiringly. To, to, you, know what look, you know what it means to gaze admiringly? I remember when I saw Joy coming down the wedding aisle. I gazed admiringly. I, I, I did that Greek verb, thalmai. On Friday, we went to lunch over in Vacaville, and then we went to race uh, bikes, and I saw this new bright, shiny red Diverge bicycle. Uh, it was... It, it has a little bit more relaxed posture. It's not the aggressive racing bike, but it's the kind of bike that guys like me can ride all day. And I was looking at it, and let me tell you, I gazed admiringly. But when I saw Joy coming down the wedding aisle, I really gazed really admiringly, okay? Let's just be clear. There are different kinds of gazing, and there's different kinds of admiration. And when John talks about seeing Jesus in his glory, it says that he gazed admiringly. Do you know what happens when you begin to gaze at something admiringly? What happens when you focus on your disappointments? What happens when you focus on your accomplishments? What happens when you focus on that next thing that you want to buy that you think is going to make you happy? And what happens when you gaze admiringly at the glory of Jesus. Thelmai. It means to gaze admiringly. It means to gaze upon something that stimulates the moral and mental faculties. That's what it means. It changes you morally. It changes you mentally. See, the things that we, we gaze at and admire shapes our morals. Did you know that? It shapes our mentality in our world today. In our world today, the world keeps telling us what real beauty looks like. It does. It tells the world what real beauty looks like, and it says it looks like a Victoria's Secret model. And one of the things that really bugs me about this is what it tells my daughters about what they're supposed to look like to be beautiful. I hate that. I hate what it tells my wife what she's supposed to look like to be beautiful. I think we have completely lost our minds as a culture and a nature about what true beauty is supposed to look like. It tells our boys, our sons, it teaches them how to look at a woman in a way that objectifies her. You understand what I'm saying here? We've learned to gaze admiringly 
in a way that destroys our souls. And what we've got to learn how to do is we've got to learn how to gaze admiringly at something that can transform, metamorphosize our souls. All right, let's move on. Jesus is revealed to us in glory. And for John, he gazed admiringly on the glory of Jesus. By the way, you might want to try that. It might change your life. Why and how are the presence of Moses and Elijah significant in this text? Okay, I, 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 I don't know how to say this point. I don't. I'm just going to tell you. I don't know how to say this point. I know what this text is pointing to. I just don't know how to say the point. It's very clear to me what this, this is pointing to because I understand this text. I understand it how it fits in the book of Matthew, and I understand how it fits in the New Testament. I know where Matthew's going. I do. And I couldn't figure out how to say this. And last night in the middle of the night, I woke up. I had my point before I went to bed. I changed my point in the middle of the night, and I changed it again when I got up this morning. Jesus, in conversation with Moses and Elijah, points us to Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. Really? Just then... There appeared before them Moses and Elijah. By the way, remember, remember, if you were Jewish, you don't call the Old Testament the Old Testament. You call it what? The law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. That's what you call it in English. You call it the law and the prophets. You have here Moses who gives the law. You have here Elijah, who represents the first of the prophets. Um, Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with them. Earlier in Matthew, earlier in Matthew, Jesus says this. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's significant. Because here, who's Jesus talking with? Moses and Elijah who represent the law and the prophets. Jesus says earlier in the book of Matthew, and remember, everything in Matthew should help shape the way we understand Matthew. It is developing a concept as we're working our way through it. But early on, Jesus announced, hey, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. He is the fulfillment of the Law and the Prophets. By the way, anybody know what, uh, anybody know what, what, what Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were talking about? Because Peter, James, and John are watching and they see Jesus in conversation with Moses and Elijah. Anybody know what they were talking about? Matthew doesn't tell us. Luke does. They were talking about the death of Jesus. Remember, it was immediately before this, this text, Jesus asked his disciples who they say he is, and then he tells them that the Son of Man must be betrayed and suffer and die and rise on the third day. And he's been talking to them about, and by the way, after this text, he talks to them again about what? Suffering, dying on the third day, rising again. 
And he's in conversation with them. Uh, you know, there, there's a guy named Warren Wiersbe. He's a pretty good Bible teacher. Uh, and, and there's another one here. And there's a lot more to talk about with regards to Moses and Elijah, but I feel like Josh will love it. You can ask me after service, okay? Uh, if you're at all interested, quote-unquote, in the end times and stuff like that, Moses and Elijah show up in Revelation chapter 11. They're very interesting. Uh, they are associated with the coming again of Jesus. Very, very interesting. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says about this, the presence of Moses and Elijah was significant. Moses represented the law and Elijah the prophets. All the law and the prophets point to Christ and, and are fulfilled in Christ. There's another guy named... Um, Michael Green, uh, he's a British evangelical Bible scholar and uh, written a few books, a lot of books. And, and Michael Green says, says that, that, that Moses and Elijah were recognized as the supreme representatives of the law and the prophets of Israel. And here they were in this vision talking with Jesus who had come to fulfill what both the law and the prophets had looked forward to. Their significance was even greater than that, however. In, in Scripture, both Moses and Elijah are connected with with the end of time. That's what it talks about in Revelation chapter 11. Really, really fascinating. They're not named by name, but they're named by their works. Really interesting. But that's one of those things I probably shouldn't be talking about right now. Okay. Uh, so what's the point of the divine proclamation? We see the divine presence of God. You know, we talked about coming in this bright cloud. And I told you that throughout the Old Testament, that the... That you know, in, in all the way back in Exodus chapter 13, 21, when, when God comes to the nation of Israel, by day it says the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them. Uh, we see this, this idea of God uh, in this bright cloud appearing to the nation of Israel again in, in Exodus chapters 14, 16, 19, 24, 33, 34, and 40. We see it again in the books of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 1 King, and other Old Testament books. If you were a Jew, and Matthew is a gospel written primarily to a Jewish audience, you immediately understand the bright cloud as the presence of God. So we have the divine presence, but we also have the divine proclamation. The divine proclamation declares to us the true nature of Jesus. And what God says is, it says, that, um, that he speaks to them from the cloud, and he says this, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so Jesus is the Son of God, the true Son of God, in the way that no one else is a Son of God. That Jesus is the beloved of the Father. That Jesus is pleasing to God in every way that Jesus speaks with authority and we should listen to him. God says, listen to him. So I want to come back to a question I raised earlier. And I want to come back to this verse, verse 8. It says, when they looked up, speaking of Peter, James, and John, when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And we read about that word theomai, where John says, we saw, we gazed admiringly at his glory. The kind of gaze that changes your mentality, that changes your character. 
So what's the significance of Matthew writing, they saw no one except Jesus? And, and, and you know, perhaps this phrase means nothing more than Moses and Elijah were gone. But when I read about John's experience later in John chapter 114, I think we're not stretching it too far to see here something else. That there are in these words a principle. There are in these words a point of application that I think are potentially life-changing for you today if, if you humbly receive the word implanted. If you walk out and you just kind of forget about this, Expect absolutely no change in your mentality or your character. But if you humbly receive the word implanted and you begin to gaze admiringly at Jesus and his glory, I think it can be life-changing. As I said, perhaps this phrase means nothing more than Moses and Elijah were, were now gone. Or I think that this phrase is pregnant with significance beyond the immediate set, setting. That perhaps Peter, James, and John had a new sense or outlook in how they saw life, even if it was only for a moment. Okay? But is what I'm saying true to Scripture? Not just me reading my own ideas into this verse, but is what I'm saying true to the Scripture? And people, don't ever, ever listen to me or any other Bible teacher if we just kind of come up with a point and assign it a text to the point, that makes the point. You go back, you look at the Scripture in its context, but then you look at the Scripture in the context of Scripture. And you always look, because, because I can be wrong and I can be deceived, and sometimes there are some people today who are not just deceived, but I think deceiving others. It is hugely important that you study the Scriptures and humbly receive the Word implanted that's able to save your soul. What does the Bible say to us about gazing upon, beholding, seeing no one except Jesus? In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I've been going to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 recently. I don't know why. I mean, not intentionally. I just keep going back there. I keep bouncing back. And, uh, and part of it's just my studies. My studies, I end up going to a cross-reference. And in recent weeks, I've been bouncing back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 on several different occasions. And the same thing happened here. I was looking up some cross-references on this text of Matthew. And I read these words. And, but let me give you the context of this. Let me give you the context because understanding the context, I think, helps understand the meaning. Paul was writing to the Corinthians... He was writing to them about how some people, they have like veiled eyes. They can't really see the truth. They read the scriptures, but they don't really see or understand the truth of the scriptures. And, and what, 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 what Paul does is he writes about how some people, because their hearts are hard, they have veiled eyes and are unable to really read and understand the scriptures in a way that is life-changing for them. They read it, and they're unchanged by it. That is a scary thing. If you read the scriptures, and you're not changed by it, that is a scary thing. 
the Jews knew the Scriptures. Well, actually, Jesus said they didn't know the Scriptures, nor did they know the power of God. They kind of knew about the Scriptures, but they didn't really know the Scriptures. So, but then what Paul does in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he talks about people who have, who have repented. They've humbled themselves before God, and they have repented, and they've turned to God. And he writes to these people, and he says this, And, and we all, who with unveiled faces, contemplate. Uh, the, the word means to behold. It actually means to gaze as into a mirror. That word contemplate. But it, he, he, he writes, uh, We all, who with unveiled faces, contemplate what? The Lord's glory. Now, you can read the words, contemplate the Lord's glory. But can you contemplate the Lord's glory? Can you see the glory of God when you're reading the Scriptures? Because if you read the words, but it's not penetrating, then there needs to be a little bit of soul work. Could be there needs to be some repentance, confession of sin. But to humbly receive the word implanted, that is able to save your soul and to contemplate the Lord's glory. And it says, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being what? Transformed. Anybody want to take a guess at what that word means? It's the exact same word from Matthew where it says that, that Jesus was transfigured. Metamorpho. Now, when Jesus was transformed, his glory wasn't a reflected glory. It, came, it was a glory that came from within and was revealed. For you, for me, the glory, our glory, is a reflective glory, as gazing into a mirror. Our glory is a reflected glory, a, the glory of God, if we are gazing admiringly on him in his glory. He says, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image. Literally, icon. You are, if you're beholding and contemplating the glory of a risen Savior, you become the Lord's icon. You begin to reflect in yourself his glory with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Uh, I What do you look at longingly? What do you look at longingly? What do you look at longingly, whether it's, I don't know, whether it's going into a bike shop, uh, where it's going on your computer, where you watch on TV, what do you look at admiringly? Because whatever you're looking at admiringly, it is shaping your mentality, and it is shaping your character 
for good or for bad. I'd like to give you a little homework assignment. Can I do this? We in Western civilization today, we in uh, North America today, aren't necessarily really, really good at contemplative prayer. We're not really good at contemplative prayer. What we're really good at is, God, get me out of this mess. Okay? God, why are you letting me go through this? This is so unfair. Uh, We're really good at asking God for stuff. But we're not always really good at contemplative prayer. There are a lot of people who say contemplative prayer, that sounds too much like New Age theology. Just remember, the word contemplative is in the Bible, okay? And the word prayer is in the Bible. I mean, we just read here about contemplating the Lord's glory. A really good place to do that is in prayer. I mean, I don't know how else you're going to do it. A contemplative prayer. Now, what this looks like and how you do this, it's kind of like riding a bike. At first, it feels really, really uncomfortable. It feels really, really awkward. A lot of it is counterintuitive. But as you begin to do it, and as you begin to invest yourself in contemplative prayer, as you begin to spend your time, invest your time in contemplating the the glory of Jesus, uh, maybe what you need to do is go back and read this text. But maybe what you need to do is, and, and, and this morning what I did is, I just, I thought, you know what? I can't lose this. I can't lose this. So I, I, I actually wrote that text, a, a scripture from Second. Corinthians uh, 3, uh, verse 18. I, I, put it, I couldn't find any blank 3 by 5 cards. I misplaced them. Uh, but I put it on this, and I thought, I want that in my Bible. I want that when I wake up in the morning, tomorrow morning. I want to be able to just sit and reflect and pray. And, and so what I'm going to do tomorrow, and you can do whatever you want, but I'm going to spend 15 minutes just contemplating the glory of God. Not asking God for stuff just contemplating the Lord and all of his glory. And, and, and what I'm going to do is on Tuesday, I'm going to get up. And before I do anything, well, I will get a cup of coffee. Uh, but Because I always contemplate better with a cup of coffee in my hand and my dog laying across my lap. Uh, but, you know, on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and on Saturday and on Sunday, and on Monday. And I'm going to do this until I learn how to do this. And it's just like you're a kid on a bike. If you fall down, what do you do? You get back up, you get back on your bike. If you're almost 60 and you fall off your bike, what do you do? You get up, you're kind of, yeah, very slowly, you're kind of shaking when you get on the bike. But you get up and... and I think that, that nothing powerful happens in our lives without investment. You know, it's not about sitting and listening to sermons. It's more about humbly receiving the word implanted and contemplating 
the glory of, of the Lord. Matthew's gospel is a portrait of Jesus. Jesus is the glorious Son of God, the Lord over Moses and Elijah, the center point of the Old Testament Scriptures, the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. He is the glorious Son of God. He is the beloved of the Father. He is, always has, always will do what is pleasing to God in all things. He is the one to whom we should always listen to. And when we fix our eyes on Him, and when we gaze admiringly on Him instead of lesser things, He changes how we view everything else in life. Let's pray. God, today, we don't want to just simply hear the Word. We want to receive humbly receive the word implanted that is able to save our souls. Uh, God, teach us how to, 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 to begin to take this path of contemplative prayer where we're really focused in on you, gazing admiringly on you. The way a, a groom gazes admiringly on his young bride. Help us, God. Help us, God, to, to fix our our vision on something better than all the little distractions the world tries to throw at us. And Lord, change us in ever-increasing glory as we gaze on your glory. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.